First Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord for us this morning. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to it for us this morning. You may be seated. So that last hymn that we sang uh, was chosen specifically for the sermon text and topic that we were going to be focusing on today um, until Friday. And Friday, things changed uh, for me really believed that we needed to go in a different direction this morning. And so um, next week we're going to sing that song again, and uh, probably the week after that, and more than likely the, the week after that as well. So um, I love thy kingdom, Lord. And the focus of that cry and that hymn is on the church, and the kingdom of Christ being built and established in and through the church on earth. And uh, we long for that final day when the kingdom of Christ will come in all its fullness. And the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Until then, we have outposts of his glory scattered throughout the world, outposts of his kingdom called the church. And uh, we'll look at that next week and in the coming weeks ahead. This morning, I wanted to, uh, actually, before I get to that, let me, do, let me say one more thing. Um, there's, uh, there's a lot going on in this little church body, and um, a lot of very serious things that uh, we're dealing with as a church family. And um, I would invite you to really consider fasting and praying this week for those prayer requests that we've sent out to you through email. Um, I don't know what God's doing with Oak Ridge Community Church, but I know that the amount of trial and and suffering that we're having right now um, should not be thrown up as just some flippant happenstance. Um, I'm so thankful to see Susie here. (laughs) Praise the Lord and others around. Um, But there's some very serious things going on. Please, I would encourage you to to join me in fasting this week at some point when uh, you feel that it's right for you. um, To devote time to seeking the Lord on behalf of these matters and and, uh, really... uh, really asking for the Lord's mercy 
in, in these areas. That's something that we've not been accustomed to doing or having to do. The Puritans knew it well. They knew extended seasons of seeking the Lord for his mercy. And um, I would ask you to join me this week in just praying for the Lord's mercy to be poured upon our church body. So, But you pray with me. Why don't we just pray together and then we'll get into the sermon this morning. Father, thank you for um, your holiness, the hallowedness of your name and your dedication to see the hallowedness of your name manifested in this world. Lord, what does Christmas and the remembrance of the incarnation of God the Son, what does it teach us about your uh, commitment to your glory other than you will go to great unimaginable lengths to see that you are exalted in the earth. And uh, Lord, we are commanded in your word to be still, to know that you are God, that you will be exalted in the earth, you will be exalted among the nations. And uh, Lord, no matter how dark or poor or cloudy our, our vision of that reality may be in our current circumstances, we know that your commitment to your glory will prevail over all things. And in the end, in the end, we will see your glory cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Lord, I long for that day when every trial is absorbed in a holy understanding of your intention behind it. Every pain, I guess, of the trial is absorbed. And finally, seeing what you were doing and what you were accomplishing through that trial. But until that day, God, I pray for grace and I pray for mercy to be still and to know that you are God no matter what. Pray for the Webbers, Lord. We pray for the Rossmans and the Choys. We pray for the Mathewitz family and Joanna and Pat. Lord, we pray for the Plockers. Continue to lift up Alice to you. Lord, we pray for Becky Waldemar. Lift up the UTAC family. You know, Lord, you know. Father, we pray for mercy. As a church body, we pray for your purposes in refining us and fulfilling in us what is lacking in our conformity to Christ. Lord, we pray that you would, you would see that realized 
in us, Lord, that your mercies would be poured upon us and that we would see them. Please encourage us, Lord. Keep us from despair. And let us hold our heads high in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, let us walk defiantly against the world, the tyranny of the devil, and the uh, despotic overreach of sin that would seek to master us, Lord, crouching at the door, waiting for the opportunity. So, Lord, strengthen our grip on the shield of faith. Help us know more fully that hope of salvation that we have covering our heads, Lord. Let us strap up more tightly, bind up our feet more fully with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Lord, help us take hold of the sword of the Spirit. In praying in the Spirit, help us wage war against every doubt, every fear, every trembling of soul, every failure, every insecurity. Help us walk with that breastplate of righteousness, Lord, having a a clear conscience, a holy conscience in your ways. And may the belt of truth strap it all together. Help us run with endurance, the race set before us, and fight the good fight of faith. Lord, I ask for clarity from your word this morning. Would you please help us understand more of your will and your intention relating to godly fear? And um, We love you, Lord. We love your kingdom. And so we pray, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the last Lord's Day, we were in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. And we know that that verse commands all Christians to walk in godly fear. And what we were trying to do last week was answer the question, what does it mean for a Christian to walk in godly fear? Um, Just by the way, on your sheet, your note sheet, if you take notes, if you use that sheet, you can cross out the title on the top and uh, you can put godly fear dash, clarifying some questions. That is, or maybe answering some questions, but that is the title for this morning. I heard from many of you uh, that last Sunday sermon was very helpful and that you uh, greatly enjoyed it, and that is always an amazement to me. I, I stand in awe of the Lord using someone and something like me to bless his people, and I'm grateful for that. I know it's all of God, and, and I'm glad that it was an encouragement to, to many of you. However, there were some of you that reached out with some questions, 
and with some responses to the sermon that made me feel that I needed to clarify a few things before we move on. So I was going to write it in a blog or, you know, in a post on Into the Weeds. I actually had it all written up, and then I thought, this is way too long, first of all. No one's going to read this. And then secondly, I think it would be more helpful for it to come from the pulpit rather than saying, hey, go read this on, on the website. So in light of that, there are three things that I want to try to clarify today <clears throat> relating to uh, walking in godly fear. The first is I want to clarify and just reiterate maybe the kind of fear that we're talking about when we're talking about walking in godly fear. I also want to, secondly, clarify as much as I can understand this. Now, I'm very limited on this topic that I'm, that I'm about to mention, but as much as I can understand this topic, I want to clarify what it will mean or what it will be like for a believer to face God in the day of judgment. I'm going to give you my best go at it. You're going to be left with questions, and I will not have those answers for you. Uh, maybe, depending on, depending on the question. But. Thirdly, I want to try and clarify God's purpose behind instilling this kind of fear in the lives of his children. What is God's purpose in sparking fear in our hearts? So those are the three things I want to talk about. These statements are not going to include everything that could be said, and believe me, there will, as I just mentioned, there will still be some questions concerning this matter when we're done, but I hope that these clarifications will be a helpful guide for us so that we're uh, better equipped to walk through uh, this challenging topic, understanding this challenging topic and learning what it means to walk in godly fear. So first of all, I want to I reiterate, maybe give a reminder of the kind of fear that we're talking about when we're talking about godly fear. I say godly fear in order to distinguish it from ungodly fear. You guys remember that from last week. Now, borrowing from Charles Spurgeon, I just want to reiterate that the way that we distinguish between those two kinds of fear, that there's a godly fear, there's an ungodly fear, the way we distinguish between those two as we were helped by Charles Spurgeon, is that ungodly fear causes a person to run away from God. Godly fear causes a person to run to God. So ungodly fear in the heart of a person will cause a person to flee away from the presence of the Lord. We saw that example in Genesis 3.8, right? Adam and Eve, after they sinned and they transgressed the law of God, when they rebelled against him in the garden, as soon as that happened, they heard the Lord walking in the cool of the garden, and what did they do? They, they ran away in fear. They sought to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord. Now, what kind of fear is that? That's an ungodly fear. Uh, we saw in the parable of the talents, the, the one servant with the one talent was afraid of his master and was afraid to do anything with what his master had entrusted to him. So what did he do with what was given to him? He buried it away. Right? And that was avoidance. He was avoiding the fact that he was going to have to answer to his master someday for what he did with his master's things. And so that is a kind of ungodly fear. 
It's a kind of fear that makes a person afraid to come to God because it's the fruit of guilt and shame and hopelessness and despair and dread with no hope added to it. It is simply a perspective that is limited to viewing God as a righteous judge and viewing yourself as a guilty sinner and understanding the inevitable consequence. The inevitable consequence of that is condemnation, it's judgment, it's hell, right? Now that reality causes people to be consumed with an ungodly fear such that it doesn't motivate them to come to the Lord. But a godly fear is not like that. A godly fear does have within it guilt and shame and sorrow and grief and hopelessness and even at times despair. But what distinguishes godly fear from ungodly fear is that it will always be partnered with hope. Godly fear will always be paired with hope in relation to who God is. It's not limited to understanding God merely as a righteous judge. It's also expanded to understand that though God is a righteous judge, he is also a God of grace and compassion and mercy. A God who promises for all who come to him that he is abundant in loving kindness and faithfulness for them. Right? A God who is ready to forgive, Psalm 86.5 says. It does have a measure of guilt and shame and sorrow and grief and even trembling. And that's just a normal reaction of being awakened to something that is true about God. Right? If you don't tremble at the thought of judgment and understanding the reality of God's law coming to bear upon you as a sinner, then you do not yet know what it means to fear God. We ought to feel that trembling of soul whenever we consider the standard that God created us to live up to and then realize how far short we come of it. Just the reality of who we're dealing with whenever we're talking about God. We are talking about the God who made us, the God who owns us, the God who is sovereign over us, the God whose right it is to decree what is right for us and what is not right for us. That is the God against whom we have rebelled, the God of unimaginable power and authority who will bring to bear upon sinners the, the, the unimaginable depths of his wrath in hell. When we consider those realities together, we better tremble before the presence of the Lord. That is a real experience that even believers ought to have, right? But the difference between having an ungodly fear that that reality would cause us to flee away from the Lord and having a godly fear where that reality actually is the reason we're running to him, that is the difference. The difference is hope. So... When the Holy Spirit births godly fear in the soul, it urges us not to run away from God or to try and hide from God, but it compels us in that fear to come and make peace with God, right? Like Jesus said in Matthew 5, make peace with your enemies before you come to the court. Godly fear makes us want to seek out a means of making peace with the Lord. And by God's grace, those who respond in fear to his terrifying judgments find the Lord Jesus Christ is his terms of peace. And we're enabled to come to him. And so there's the main distinguishing factor. Godly fear is always permeated with hope. It always has confidence and trust and belief that God's promises to receive every person who forsakes their sin and comes to him for help will find mercy and receive grace. 
that they will find compassion richly poured out upon them by the Lord. This is the kind of fear that Psalm 147 says God delights to see in his children. Psalm 147, verses 10 through 11, it says, He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He does not take pleasure in the legs of a man. That is, he's not delighted in what we can offer him. He's not delighted in what we can do in our own strength. It's not us just pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps in order to make God happy with us. That's not what pleases God. What pleases God is to see in those who come to him that they have a right fear of him that is mixed with hope. The Lord takes, does not delight in the strength of the horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord favors those who fear him, those who hope in his steadfast love. I remember the first time I saw that verse, it was eye-opening to me. Because right here you have, okay, right here you have the pairing of both fear and hope together, Right? Now, what we cannot do in seeking to understand what this verse means is redefine what fear means, right? There is a specific word in Hebrew that means reverence. There is a specific word in Greek that means honor, and it is not this, fe- it is not this word fear. This word communicates trembling. This word can communicate terror. It communicates being seized with the reality that causes you to tremble, We can't redefine what this word means here in this context. But what we also need to make sure we don't do is forget to add to the meaning of that word the reality that those who have this godly fear ought also to have hope. Right. So that has to to drive our understanding of what it means to have godly fear. Jeremiah 32.40, I mentioned this last week. It makes clear that this is the kind of fear that God will put in the hearts of his people in the new covenant. This is a distinguishing mark of those who truly belong to him. And this is, in fact, what ensures that his people will persevere in the faith until the end and will not turn away from him. It says in verse 40 of Jeremiah 32, I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and I will not turn away from them to do them good, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Now, you see both elements here. You have God swearing by his own name, I am making a covenant with them. I will not turn away from them to do them good. And man, that's hopeful, right? That gives assurance. That gives confidence that God's faithfulness to me is not resting on my ability to perform or to keep any rules. God's faithfulness to me is based upon his own commitment to himself, right? I will not turn away from them. I swear it. I'm making a covenant. I will be there to do them good. However, part of that covenant fulfillment is putting within the hearts of his people a fear of his name that causes them not to turn away from him. So God swears, I will not turn away from them, and I'm going to ensure that they will not turn away from me by putting the fear of my name in their hearts. This kind of fear that drives us to run to the Lord, that shakes us out of our sin and brings us to deal with God in truth, is the kind of fear that God says he promises will mark his people in the new covenant. Now, I know that that was nothing new. Uh, I shared all of that last week. 
but I just wanted to reiterate it so that we're all on the same page. Now, for some clarifications concerning the judgment that the believers are going to face when they stand before the Lord. As I said before, I'm not going to have all the answers here. I don't know exactly what it's going to be like for the believer, but I do know certain truths that we are told in the scriptures that we cannot deny. Now, I want to highlight three of them that I think will help us think through this issue of standing before God in judgment as believers. This is coming from 1 Peter 1.17, where Peter tells us to walk in fear because God is going to judge each one of us impartially, right? He's talking about the day of judgment. Well, what is that day going to be like for the believer? First of all, I need to couple together couple together, I need to bring together these three statements. So all of these statements are linked together, okay? They build on each other. Number one truth that needs to guide us in our understanding of what it's going to be like to stand before God in judgment as believers. Number one truth. In Christ, believers have the promise that the, the totality of condemnation for our sin has been dealt with. Number one. In Christ, believers have the promise that the totality of condemnation for our sin has been definitively dealt with. The finished work of Christ, in other words, ensures that no believer will receive condemnation when he or she stands before the judgment seat of God. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. You guys probably know this one pretty well. These verses declare that the entire record of debt that we owe to the law of God has been dealt with in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have your Bible, turn there. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. I think we got it up here, but if you can look at it in your Bible, that's always better. Verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So here Paul is talking about this certificate of debt. The certificate of debt that has certain decrees that stand against each one of us. Now, what is that dealing with, right? That's dealing with the record of debt that is tallied up in relation to our disobedience to God's law. We have not kept God's law. We have not fulfilled our calling to be holy as the Lord is holy. We have not been adequate image bearers as is reflected in the holy law of God. We have broken his law. We are all guilty. We've come short of the glory of God. And these records, these decrees, this record of debt is what stands against us, testifying about us that we deserve the holy wrath of God. We deserve the punishment that the law meets out upon the sinner, which is death, eternal separation from the goodness and the presence of God's grace. Paul says, in Christ for the believer, this certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us has been utterly canceled. 
He uses another word here. It's been taken out of the way. What does that mean? Well, when something's in your way between you and another object, you have to go around that object or you have to go through that object or you got to go over that object or sometimes under the object in order to get to the goal, right? In order to get to the place where you're trying to get, if something's in the way, it's an obstacle. What God is saying here in his word is that there is now no obstacle for us in coming to the Lord because every single part of that certificate of debt that stood against us has been removed. It's been taken out of the way. And how was it taken out of the way? Well, it was taken out of the way when the father took it and put it in in his son's hand and nailed it to the cross. Right? That is where Jesus Christ paid the penalty, the debt. He fulfilled that whole whole, uh, list of decrees that were against us. They were utterly and entirely fulfilled on behalf of the believer when Jesus hung upon the cross. Now, that means that when Jesus Christ hung upon the cross, when the Son of God was nailed to the tree, he held that record of debt in his hands to show all creation that forever and always these sins for which he was dying have been paid for with his blood. And there is not a single jot or tittle left on that certificate of debt that any of us will have to answer for in relation to condemnation. You with me on that? The record of debt has been fully taken away. This is what it means in Galatians 3.13 when it talks about Christ having redeemed us entirely from the curse of the law. How did he do that? By becoming a curse for us. Now, if we're hoping in Christ, we're hoping that Christ became a full curse for us. That means that at the same time, we are expecting that we will not experience any of that curse from the hand of God. So if Jesus Christ became a curse for us under the wrath of of God, according to the demands of the law in our place, that means he has fully satisfied it. There is no curse left for us to experience, right? John 3.18, Jesus says, whoever believes in him is not condemned in this sense of finding condemnation in the presence of God. But he who does not believe is condemned because he does not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The one who believes is not judged, he says. John 5, 24, he's not judged because the believer has passed out of judgment and into life. Right? All of these just build this consistent testimony that for the believer, when we stand before the judgment seat of God, there is no wrath for us to face. Jesus Christ has faced it all. Romans 4.25 says the same thing. Hebrews 9.26, Jesus died once for all. He, He appeared in these last days to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Putting it away means that it's never going to be able to raise its ugly head again. So in light of these statements, we can definitively say that on the day of judgment, no believer will be called to answer for their sin under the threat of condemnation in the presence of God. Okay? Did you follow me through all that? Some of you did. Number two. Not only does the Bible make clear that believers will not face condemnation on the day of judgment, but it clearly declares that believers will give an account of themselves to God on the day of judgment. 
So even though we're not facing God for the sake of being condemned and enduring his wrath, we are nonetheless facing God for evaluation. We are facing him in the day of judgment. And we will be called on that day to give an account for every area of our lives that have not yet been conformed to the image of Christ. But it will not lead to our condemnation. Romans chapter 14 verses 10 through 12 states very clearly that all believers will stand before the judgment seat of God in order to give an account of ourselves to him. Right, you see that there? Why do you judge your brother or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of ourselves to the Lord. That is a very clear statement in Paul's writing to believers. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 9 through 10. Paul says, but we have as our ambition to be pleasing to God, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now look at that. Paul says we have as our ambition to be pleasing to God. Notice what he doesn't give as a reason for that. He doesn't give as a reason for that all the good things that God has done in his life, even though that is part of it. He doesn't say here we have as our ambition to be pleasing to God because God saved us. Because he poured his grace out upon us. Now that's not what Paul says here. What Paul says here is we have as our ambition to be pleasing to God because we will all stand before his judgment seat. You, you, do you see that? The thought of standing before the judgment seat of God ought to fill you with a holy passion to be pleasing to him. That's godly fear. Right? It's just like your father. If you have a good dad, some of you guys didn't, some of y'all did not have good fathers. And I, I recognize that, I acknowledge that, but it doesn't change the benefit of having a good father. You can understand that. Right? If you had a good father who loved you, loved you enough to discipline you well whenever you were in error. <laughs> you know what it's like to walk in the fear of your father. I had a dad who loved me, and he disciplined me. He didn't always discipline me in the best ways, but he loved me enough to discipline me. And what that instilled in my heart was a holy fear of my dad. I wanted to do what was pleasing in his sight because I knew what was coming if I didn't. Right? There's something good to that, guys. Children, when your mom and dad spank you or ground you or whatever they do to, to discipline you for the wrongs that you do, that is an expression of their deep love for you. They love you enough to make sure that they do everything they can not to let you keep walking in a path of sin. It's a good thing. Now, in godly children, they're going to have a godly response to that. They're going to fear their father rightly. Fear their mother, maybe. Most of the time, not. But it's kind of like that with the Lord. If we are truly his children, we're going to have to give an answer to our father one day. And when we stand before our father in order to give an answer for how conformed we were to the image of Christ and what it actually means to be his child, 
That ought to spark a measure of fear in our hearts. That ought to motivate us to do more, to seek after him. Right. So 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10, Paul says, We have as our ambition to be pleasing to him because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I, I don't mean to go here and there and here and there this whole time. Listen, this was written on Friday and Saturday morning. You guys are just going to have to deal with any, any, any craziness that you experience listening to me preach this this morning. But I do want to point out here that when we stand before the judgment seat of God, look who we're standing before. We're standing before Christ, guys. We're standing before the Christ who bore the full measure of the wrath of God in our place. We're not standing before the judge, in other words. We're standing before our brother who came to deliver us from judgment. I think it's really important to keep that in mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is the next one I want to point to. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Now, again, I'm trying to build a case that the Bible makes clear. We will give an account of ourselves to the Lord on the day of judgment, but giving account on that day is not under the threat of condemnation. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, even though these verses are directly speaking of the judgment that ministers of the church will face. These are talking about those who labor in ministry in the church. That's what this judgment is specifically talking about. Even though that's directly talking or directly being applied to ministers, these verses nevertheless lay down a principle for all believers to take to heart. Starting in verse 13, Paul says, Each man's work will become evident. Oh, excuse me, I'm going to start in verse 12. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If a man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now this is where we get the doctrine of purgatory. Well, this is where some get the doctrine of purgatory. Some of you were awake for that. Yeah. This is not talking about purgatory. This is talking about a final examination of the believer's life to evaluate how much of that believer's life was made up of gold, was being built with silver or precious stones, and how many things done in the name of the Lord were actually wood, hay, and straw. Or stubble. See, it's this, it's this final evaluation before the judgment seat of God where what I was talking about last week, he holds up the standard of what it means to be a child of his. He holds up the standard for ministers. What does it mean to be a godly minister in the household of God? He holds that standard of his word up and he compares our lives to it. And at that point, we find out just how much of our lives were made up of gold silver, and precious stones. And just how much of those things were actually nothing more than wood, hay, stubble. Right? Things that we thought were probably really important for the kingdom of God. 
right? Those, those great expressions of our faithfulness to Jesus. I got a, I got a feeling that on, the, on that day, most of those things that we hold up as the great things we've done for the Lord in our lives are going to burn up, right? And the things that will remain were the quiet things, the unnoticed things, the things that God had worked into our lives. Those are the things that are going to remain, right? Well, anyway, this verse lays down a principle that there is a time coming in the future when we will stand before the Lord and he will lay out our lives in his presence and he will evaluate just how much were we truly conformed to his standard revealed in his word. Just how much were we like children under him as our father. Now, just in considering this, shouldn't it then be our desire? Now, hold on, hold on. Hold on, hold on, back up, rewind, clip that, stay with me. Notice something about this guy here that Paul talks here in, in 1, 1 Corinthians 3.14, what Paul's talking about here. The fire is going to test the quality of his work. Look at verse 14. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If a man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. What does it mean that he will suffer loss on that day? I have no clue. I don't know. I don't know what it means that this man will suffer loss on the day when he stands before the Lord. But what I do know that this means is that it will be felt as loss. Right? Whatever it means, we will recognize that it was something that was lost. That could have been had. That makes it even worse. So the final judgment is not going to result in our condemnation, but it will result in our final cleansing and the final unveiling of the things that were truly of God in our lives. Now, thirdly, we need to move on quickly through these. Thirdly, we have God's promise in the midst of all of this that sin that has been addressed will never be readdressed. Sin that has been addressed will never be re-addressed. And what I mean by addressed here, I don't mean dealt with on the cross in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a given that covers all of our sin as far as condemnation is concerned. However, as 1 John chapter 1 verses 8 through 10 makes clear, there is still an abiding need, a perpetual need for believers to live a life of confessing their sins before the Lord and receiving in some way, receiving fresh forgiveness for that sin. It says here, uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now this, if nothing else, this teaches us that even as believers, we have a need to keep a short account with the Lord in our lives. We have a need to confess our sins unto the Lord. And once we do that in genuine faith and true repentance, when we come with godly sorrow before our Father and confess before Him, Lord, this is where I have failed to be your child today. Lord, forgive me. This is where I have sinned against the glorious reality of the blood of your Son that cleanses me from all sin. When we do that, the Lord says, I am faithful and I am just not only to forgive you, but to cleanse you from all of it. Right? 
That promise comes to those who confess their sins unto the Lord. Now, once that sin has been confessed, once God has declared you are forgiven in this experiential, experimental type of relationship with God, walking in fellowship with the Lord, once that has been dealt with, God's not going to bring it up again. He's not like an unfaithful, unloving spouse that continues to bring up sins from the past over and over and over again. Right? He's not like a merciless or graceless parent that continues to hold up the failings of his or her children before their eyes and say, man, you just never measure up. That's not God. That's not God. When God declares, oh, I forgive you of that. Yes, it was wrong, but I forgive you. He will never bring that up with you again. Now, the effects and the consequences of that sin will definitely have to be addressed. But he will never hold that up as a barrier between you and the Lord anymore. That's what this word forgiveness means, right? We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins. You know what that word means? It means release. He will release us from our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word's used to describe divorce, if you can picture it like that. Husband and wife get divorced. They are released. They are being released from their covenant that they made with one another. That same kind of idea is here. The Lord will release you from your sin. I said we needed to pick it up a little bit. Jeremiah 31, verse 34. The Lord makes the promise in the new covenant, I will forgive your sins and I will, rem- I will forgive your transgressions, your iniquity. I will remember your sins no more. Now, the Lord can't just forget about sin, but you understand what he's saying here. In the new covenant, there is a commitment on the Lord's part that once sin has been forgiven, he is not going to keep it in the forefront of his mind in relation to you anymore. It's not there. It is no longer the filter by which, through which he is seeing you, if you will. He says, I will remember it no more. Isaiah 43, 25 God promises for his people that he will wipe out sins that have been dealt with once for all. In other words, sin that has been wiped out has been utterly removed and will never be seen again. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18. Once someone comes reasoning with the Lord, that is confessing their sin to the Lord, once they come reasoning with the Lord, the Lord makes this promise. Though your sins are as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Right? Sins that have been made white as snow, sins that have had the stain of sin removed, sin being removed. When God has accomplished that work, he's not all of a sudden going to change it back into scarlet. Once he has made it white as snow, it is white as snow to stay. Right? So, anyway. God's promise is that sin that has been addressed will never be readdressed. And so what does it look like for a believer to stand before the Lord on the day of judgment? It looks like, A, not being condemned to hell for your sin, but giving an account to God for your sin and all the ways you have failed to live up to his standard for you. Right? You will suffer loss. I don't know exactly what that is. 
And then also sin that has been dealt with here in this life will not be brought up again in the presence of the Lord. And that is the greatest incentive that you and I have to deal with the Lord now. Right? To come before the Lord and deal with Christ over sin in our lives now rather than waiting for that day and living with an unclean conscience before the Lord and then on that day having to give an account for why we did that. Isn't it easier just to repent now, to turn from sin now, to hold fast to Christ now, to have dealings with God now rather than in the presence of his glory when you are so overwhelmed with his holiness and righteousness that you are going to be unspeakable? You know, people say, when I get before the Lord, I'm going to tell him, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. I'm going to tell him what I thought about this in my life and what I thought about that in my life and why he allowed that to happen. And I got to tell you, my friend, it's not going to be like that. When you get into the presence of the Lord, your mouth will be shut. Not only by the testimony of your own conscience, but by the sheer beauty of the manifestation of God and His glory. You will have nothing to say to Him other than, I repent, Lord. That's it. Why not deal with Him now rather than dealing with Him then? Believer or unbeliever. Come to Christ and deal with God now. We have these great and magnificent promises from the Lord. Let's take advantage of them, right? So what is Judgment Day going to look like for the believer? Well, it's not going to look like condemnation, but it is going to look like giving an account to the Lord, not for sins that have already been dealt with, but for sins that have not been addressed and dealt with in our lives. In, in the sense of confession, and repentance on our part. Now, I know that doesn't answer everything, but we need to move on. So, some clarification, thirdly, on God's purpose for this fear. What is God's purpose for sparking this kind of fear in the lives of his people? Well, I want to make this point very clear from the outset. God does not strike fear in the hearts of his people just for the sake of making them afraid. You know, he's not like a bully that gets power and encouragement off of other people being afraid of him. Right? That, that's our government, right? That's, that's, that's tyranny, right? That, that's, that's the medical establishment. They want to make everyone afraid so that they can control them. God's not like that. When God makes you afraid of something, when he sparks fear in your heart, there is a redemptive purpose always involved in it. Even if it turns into ungodly fear and causes you to flee away from the Lord, that was not the Lord's intention in sparking that fear in your life. God has designed you and I to be creatures who have the emotional capacity to experience fear. That is a gift from God. Fear is a good thing, and it was designed by God. It was designed by him for a specific purpose. Now, what is that purpose? First of all, God did not design fear to be an end in itself. He designed fear to be a means unto a greater end. I'm looking particularly at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 
verses 8 through 11 here. Second Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 11. Paul's writing to the Corinthians. You know from the first letter that he wrote to the Corinthians that there was a lot going on in this church. He had some very hard words to send to them. It seems as though there was another letter that was sent in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians where Paul had dealt even more severely with them over some matters. And here in verse 8 of 2nd Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writes, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Now I would... (laughs) I would love to be able to say that more often than I actually feel able to say it. When I make you sorrowful over things, I wish I could say that I don't regret it all the time. But here Paul is saying, I made you sorry. I, I, I sparked sorrow in you and I do not regret that it happened. Why? Why not, Paul? He says, though I did regret it, so I'm in good company. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Is that loss language again, right? For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, now listen to this verse, verse 11, for behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, what earnestness this has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Now, that is a shocking statement for Paul to say. You demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in this matter. What is he talking about? They weren't innocent. They were guilty, and that's why he wrote the letter to them, rebuking them for their sin. And yet Paul says, listen, in the response that you had to what I wrote, you proved yourselves to be innocent. Because when I wrote to you, you were filled with godly sorrow. And that godly sorrow led to repentance. And look at what he lists in, that, in, that, in the category of godly sorrow. What does he describe that godly sorrow as entailing? He says in verse 11, it was an earnestness in this repentance to vindicate themselves. To make themselves right, by the way. It was a a godly sorrow that had indignation, indignation for their sin and for their own failures before the Lord. It was a godly sorrow that was mixed with longing and zeal and avenging of the wrong. But look at what's right in the middle there. It was a godly sorrow that was mixed with fear. Now, God didn't, the Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul did not want to spark fear and sorrow and indignation in the hearts of the Corinthians just for the sake of them being afraid. It was to the end that they would repent, right? It was to the end that they would turn to the Lord away from their sin and run to Christ. Jesus says the same thing in Luke chapter 13. 
verses 1 through 5. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, Jesus was not afraid to talk about ungodly actions like persecution from civil rulers or freak accidents like a tower falling upon other people. He was not afraid to speak of those events in the categories of judgment. That this was God's judgment upon people. And he directs the people who are listening to him, he directs their attention to this reality and tells them this same thing is going to happen to you unless you repent. Now what's Jesus seeking to accomplish in them there? He's trying to get them to be afraid of something so that they would move away from what they're doing and move towards a right direction, right? Unless you repent, this will happen to you as well. Now, I just, want to, I just want to point out there quickly, I know we need to be moving along, but Christ's intention in bringing up the tower in Siloam falling or Pilate mingling the blood of some worshipers with their sacrifices, Christ's intention in doing that was to spark fear in the hearts of those who were listening, but not simply for the sake of making them afraid. He wasn't just trying to scare them into saying, God's going to treat you just like that unless you repent. He wasn't simply trying to scare them for the sake of scaring them. He was trying to scare them into godly action. In other words, God has designed fear to be a mechanism that urges and compels and leads us into the right paths of fellowship with him. So fear is not a bad thing, and fear in itself is not an evil thing. Fear actually serves a good purpose. You know that. You can recognize that even in the natural realm. If I'm afraid of being electrocuted, what am I not going to do? I'm not going to take my car key and stick it into the electrical socket, right? I'm not going to go touch a bare wire if I'm afraid of being electrocuted. The fear of what may happen to me if I do that keeps me from doing something stupid. I was talking with Justin yesterday. If I'm afraid of burning myself with fire, the last thing I'm going to do is go stick my fire in the flame or stick my hand in the flames. I'm not going to go touch that hot stove if I'm afraid of burning my hand. See, fear is a good thing. Fear is a godly mechanism that the Lord has, has put into us as his creatures and as image bearers. It's not the fear itself that is bad. It's how we react to that fear. That's, that's where it either becomes a good fear or a bad fear in relation to the Lord. It's in that sense that Galatians 3.24 talks about the law being our tutor to lead us to Christ. The law ought to show us how imperfect we are and that ought to, strike, that ought to spark fear in our hearts. That knowing we're going to give an account to the God who gave that law as the measure for our lives. But in that fear, that, that fear is designed to bring us to the point where we are ready to flee for refuge to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So I was talking with, with Grant the other day, and he said, as, as I went through that, he said, it's really like this. It's, this kind of fear is a fear designed to drive you into fellowship with God or a fear of not being in right fellowship with God. And that's exactly right. That is what right fear is. And so fear in God's economy serves a good and holy purpose. It is designed to be a compelling force that urges us to cling to God and to cling to Christ all the more. Now, as we come to a close, there's one more that I, I want to mention here. And I appreciate your patience with me this morning on this. God's purposes in, in fear are not only t- uh, designed to lead us to a greater end. It's not simply for the purpose of making us afraid, but it's to spark in us a holy desire to seek him. But then secondly, God's purpose in godly fear is not to cause us to walk around in perpetual insecurity in our relationship with God. Walking in fear does not mean walking in uncertainty about the Lord's promises for us, his faithfulness to us, or the guarantee we have of hope and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Walking in godly fear is actually something that causes us to realize those great promises more fully. So if you're going to understand the biblical sense of godly fear, you have to understand the relationship between God's warnings in Scripture and his promises in Scripture. Often people think about warning passages in Scripture as being meant exclusively for unbelievers or even for those who seem as though they're not living as believers, like backslidden believers. Right? People often view warning passages in Scripture as being exclusively applicable to them. Whereas the reality is, God has put those warnings in Scripture not just for them, but for you as well. No matter how faithful you are at walking with the Lord in your relationship with God, no matter how tightly you keep that bond with the Lord fresh and, and cultivated and how much you are laboring not to grieve the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, those warning passages apply to you just as much as it does to any other unbeliever or any unbeliever. So we have to understand that God has designed passages relating his promises and passages relating his warnings in scripture to accomplish the same goal. Both of them are designed to lead to the salvation of sinners. Promises are meant to sweetly and gently and tenderly woo us to come to the Lord for salvation. Despite what we know, uh, despite all the reasons we know we do not deserve it. But God's warnings in scripture are like the crack of the whip behind us, urging us to go take hold of those promises while we can. See, it's the already not yet aspect of walking with Christ in this world. Yes, we are saved, but we are also being saved, and we have not yet reached the full end of our salvation. We're not there yet. And so the warnings of God in Scripture are like the whip cracking behind us saying, hey, you better get moving. You better keep moving forward. Keep holding fast to Christ because if you let him go, Hebrews 6, there's no hope of return for you. Christ has indeed bore our sin in the cross. He has indeed redeemed us by his own blood. If we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. 
That's a warning and a promise. You see that, right? Christ has done this if you hold fast to him. So the promises are designed to woo us to come to the Lord. The warnings are designed to urge us to come to the Lord, right? You see this, for example, in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. This is my favorite example of this reality. Favorite picture of it in all of Scripture. I'm going to try and make this quick. These are some, if not the most foundational verses in all of Scripture. That yes, God is holy and just and righteous and pure and separated from sinners, but he also is a God who by nature is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. You remember the scene here when God is revealing this glorious aspect of his nature. It is in the midst of judgment against Israel for their disobedience to the Lord. They built a calf and they worshiped that calf despite the fact that they heard the very voice of God coming from the mountain telling them not to do such things. It was just a few days later that they, that they wound up making this calf. And the Lord tells Moses, get back, Moses, I'm going to destroy him. Moses says, Lord, you can't do that because then what are the nations going to say about your ability to save a people for your own glory? And God says, okay, Moses, I'll listen to you. Moses is overwhelmed by this reality. He says, Lord, I don't understand what is going on. How can you say that and then do this? I don't see your glory. Lord, show me your glory. God comes to him and says, I'll do it. Here's my glory, Moses. Here's my glory. The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. A God who keeps steadfast love for thousands. And here's the, here's the depth of the mercy here. Here's the great measure of the grace revealed in that reality. Here's his glory. That that goodness of God manifests towards unbelieving, undeserving sinners in this way. That he is a God forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the real measure of God's mercy and the depth of his grace. And this is the promise that this passage is, is designed to amplify for us. That even when we are at our worst as sinners, we can still come to God and know that because God innately is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, no matter what we've done, we can still come to him and expect him to pour out upon us forgiveness and mercy. Not because we've deserved it, but because this is an aspect of the very essence and the nature of God's being. It belongs to God as God to be like this. That's what the Lord's saying. And that's my glory, Moses. So there's the promise that we have. There's the promise that the sinner has that no matter what happens, I know at rock bottom, this is what God is like. And therefore, I can expect that if I come before him with true godly repentance, if I come before him confessing my sin and clinging to this reality that this is actually what he's like, then I have every reason to expect that I will receive this mercy from his hand. That's the promise. But now look at the warning, right? Notice what, how this verse ends. Verse 8. 
Do I have verse 8 there? No, I'm sorry. It's right there in verse 7. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Now, wait a second. Having iniquity and transgression and sin, doesn't that make you guilty? And yet it says here, the Lord, not only he's going to forgive those who have iniquity, transgression, and sin. And yet the very next statement says, I will by no means clear the guilty. How do those two things relate? Well, even that great hope of God being a gracious, merciful, compassionate, slow to anger God, Even that great hope that we have in the reality of who he is is not separated from the terrifying reality of who we are dealing with. All these things are true, and yet God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Now that paints the partnership here perfectly between promise and warning. You have all the reason as a sinner that you need to put your hope and trust in the Lord Because of who he is, his grace and mercy. But you also have every reason that you need to fear him and to be in terrifying, uh, to, to to be terrified by his judgment based on the reality that he will not leave those who are guilty unpunished. What does that mean? What is that communicating to us? That's communicating to us the reality that we need to come to God and have our sins dealt with now. He is a gracious and compassionate and slow to anger God, but only for those who come to him, those who remain in their guilt, those who spurn him, those who turn their backs on him, God will leave them in their sin and then treat them accordingly. This this is a picture of just the promise of, of God's grace and the reality of his judgment coming together as a promise and a warning to encourage us to come and be saved. You see the same thing in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1. I'm not going to go into that, but Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 7, 2 Corinthians uh, 7, that therefore having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. See, the promises are there to encourage us to come to the Lord. Fear is there to, to encourage us to cleanse ourselves from everything that would hinder us from grabbing onto those promises. Then you see in Psalm 25, verse 14, that the secret of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he will make them know his covenant. That's the blessing of walking in the fear of the Lord. That God will, God will make you know his covenant, and he will be secretly intimate with you. That's what that Hebrew word there means. Intimate friendship is what it's communicating. It's for those who fear him. And so the purpose of Promises is to assure us of the reality that there is an alternative to the condemnation that we deserve as sinners. And the warnings are intended by God to frighten us out of our stupor and out of our indifference and to rouse us from our numbness and sin so that we can get up and run and keep running to take hold of what God offers us in his son. And this is what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. It means that we live in constant regard and constant reference to God. It means that we live in a conscious understanding that God is holy and righteous and also righteously vindictive. 
and at the same time is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and forgiving. Walking in godly fear simply means that we walk in such a way that allows both of these realities to have their full effect in our lives. Which is, a, which is effectively this, simply driving us to cling more tightly to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, pressing in on us to abide in his kindness and urging us to hold fast to his grace and promises and his gentle, loving embrace that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what it means to walk in the fear of God. How do you do that? How do you cultivate a godly fear over against an ungodly fear? I think the secret is found in 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 through 19. And I'm going to end just by reading this and directing it to your attention. 1 John chapter 4, verses 16, verse 16 through 19. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. What is the secret of cultivating godly fear over against ungodly fear? Well, the secret is laboring to cultivate a better understanding and trust in the great love that God has shown us in Christ Jesus our Lord. We love because he first loved us, right? The more we understand what that means, the more fully we will walk in the fear of the Lord. And so I'm sorry I can't unpack that anymore. I'm sorry to keep you this long, but um, may you go home and labor with the Lord to understand more fully what it, what it means to walk in the full counsel of God in walking in the fear of the Lord. Yeah, let's pray. Father, um, thank you for your grace and mercy, Lord, that covers us in our great weaknesses, ministers to us in our pain, cuts through the fog and confusion, and leads us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Lord, please, I pray that you would do that and accomplish that in us as a result of our worship this morning, let your word have its full effect. And may we live lives that are glorifying and honoring to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we come before you and we pray. Amen. Amen. Psalm 145, <clears throat> verse 17 through 18. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and save them. May you know that blessing as you go and walk in the fear of the Lord in the week ahead. By God's grace, we'll see you Christmas Eve. Right? All right. See you then. Amen.